0: Thanks, Bill, for getting us set up this morning. <clears throat> I always feel a little bit like that, like when we pass like that, like it's the, uh, when you're at the baseball game, you know, and the, the reliever, the middle reliever has to come in and they kind of cross the, hand off the ball or something. I feel like we should have a ball we hand off or something. Either that or have walk-up music, which I think about a lot. Mine's always always ACDC. I don't know what that means. None of that's related to the sermon this morning, so, um, so if, you've been, if you've been with us for a little while, you know that we've been, we have been walking through uh, Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. And we've been in this series now for a few months, and so we're going to continue there in chapter 12 today, and the, the passage is in your, um, in your sermon notes there, it'll be chapter 12 But before we get into that, uh, I want to talk about something that you may have heard of. It's this concept uh, around storytelling. There's this idea that every hero's story has the same elements. Okay, so think about some of the stories that you love and think about the heroes uh, or the hero in that story, right? Whether it's Odysseus, who Matt talked about last week, um, or Harry Potter, your hero or your heroine, I guess, might be Katniss Everdeen from the Hunger Games, or it might be Luke Skywalker from Star Wars. Doesn't matter. There's this theory that the path of every hero follows the the same basic pattern. So you can look up the entire pattern later if you want. You can Google this thing. But so the theory goes that in the middle of the story, at some point, every hero will experience an approach, a crisis, and a treasure. Right, so the approach is exactly what it sounds like. The approach is the run-up or the, you know, the approach to the crisis. This is when he or she can see the problem coming. Right, it's when you're sitting there in the theater and you're thinking, oh boy, like, something's about to happen. I don't know if this is getting good. I don't know if this is scary. But you know, you're a little bit anxious because you know that something's about to happen. Katniss is in the woods. She's fighting for her life. And all of a sudden there's this toxic fog that rolls in. Oh, oh boy, something's happening. But then there's the, the crisis, and that's the hero's darkest hour. It, it's, it's you know the, the time when undeniably there is trauma. And before I get you know, too carried away with fiction and recount the entire Hunger Games for you and spoil it for the three people who've never seen it, um, <laughs> let me go back to what we've been reading for the past few weeks. So last week we heard Paul talking about some of the hardships that he experienced. In the prior chapter, this is 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, here's, here's a, a little snippet of what Paul says. He says, five times I, at the hands of the Jews, I received the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. And he goes on and on and on. And eventually, even if you're sympathetic to his plight, you're like, Paul, we get it. Right? It was bad. We get it. But remember, Paul was doing this because of the context he was in. The people of Corinth, and, and like many people that would read the letter or, or hear this over the centuries, they gave too much attention to the worldly accolades. So Paul decides that rather than let the, his personal triumphs drive the conversation, he would boast about his weaknesses, right? about the times that he was really down. And so, like any good hero, he ends up giving us this inventory of all the various points of crisis in his life. So that's the crisis. You had the approach, you had the crisis. And then the the next element in the the hero story is the treasure. And it's when the hero claims some special power or treasure that turns everything around and the story is rescued. Sometimes in the story, that's called the turn. So for our anniversary a few months ago, one of the things that Stephanie and I did was we went to the movies. And... um, And she picked the movie, by the way. Um, and in the, in the spirit of, you know, a, a spending 10 great years together, something that typified our marriage, she picked Beauty and the Beast. And so, you know, so we went to see it. I, I want to have year 11, so I was like, yeah, let's do it. Beauty and the Beast. So we went. So in that movie, the treasure, or the turn, it's, right, it's the moment at the end of the movie. It comes at the, almost at the very end. Right, when Belle is with the beast and and you know, I, I admittedly maybe I wasn't watching it as carefully. I don't know she I don't remember if she gives him a kiss or if she cries and the tear falls. I don't know, it's dramatic, there's moving. But all of a sudden, it's like light emanates from his lifeless body. Right? And you realize that she had the power all along to change everything. Right? This is the turn. And so today's portion of, of Paul's second letter. It has that dramatic effect. It's where he's been talking about the approach, and he's been talking about the crisis and the depths of the trouble that he's faced, but today we're going to see how he's saved from the crisis. It's a a power that comes not from himself, but from God through Christ. We'll even see how what might look like more trouble may just be God at work for a greater purpose, the purpose of saving us and glorifying himself. So that's, that's where we're headed today. Now, as I, as I read the full text of today's sermon, um, or the full text for today's sermon, please stand with me in honor of God's word. From 2 Corinthians chapter 12 I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who fourteen years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though, if I should boast, I would not be a fool. If I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think of me more, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. thanks you can be seated so as you as you get settled let me give you an outline of where we're going and how we're going to examine the scripture this morning how we're going to get from paul's boasting to this unnatural statement that when i am weak then i am strong first we'll take a, another look at the subject of paul's boasting then I'm going to talk some about this mysterious thorn and give some examples of how I think we're also burdened with similar problems. Finally, we'll see that Paul has access to the hero's treasure, God's grace. So we're going to talk about boasting, the thorn, and God's treasure. So now back to the beginning of today's of today's passage, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I bet there are some of you who read that first, pa- the, the first bit here when Paul says, I must go on boasting. And this might be like the first time in your life that you're like, finally, me and Paul, we're, we're like this. We got something in common. Right? Then, of course, he gets into some other elements um, that probably had you scratching your head a little bit. So I'm going to talk about some of those m- more mysterious parts in a moment. But first, a recap of this whole boasting theme. So Paul is writing to an audience of people in Corinth who are particularly focused on status. So one of the ways this evidence itself is that there are others in the area that seem to be defaming Paul. Right? They end up getting into something like a resume contest. In the last chapter, Paul makes it clear that he is not interested in playing their game. So instead of showcasing his highlights, he pulls out the blooper reel. That's why in the last chapter, he gives, this, he gives this litany of all the awful things that are happening to him. Just a few minutes, that's what I call it, the crisis. Right? But now it's, it's as if he still doesn't have everybody's attention. So he's going to hit them with one more thing, something that's, that's kind of on their terms. Right? So take a look at those first few verses again. He says, okay, I'll go on boasting, at which point you know, if he follows the same thread that he did in the last chapter, it's going to be more depressing stuff. Right? I was shipwrecked, and my, you know, my car, my horse and carriage broke down, whatever, and like, nobody would save me. But he doesn't do that. Instead, out of nowhere, Paul starts talking about a man who has seen visions and received revelations. A man who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whatever that is, and taken up to paradise. And just in case you're wondering, the man being referenced here is, in fact, Paul, the apostle, right, the author of this letter. Okay, so I will we'll just pause here for a second. I'm going to readily admit there is a lot of mystery in this passage, and this side of heaven I don't think we'll ever understand. Paul himself notes that though he was there, he heard things which he may not utter, We don't know if that's simply by design. We don't know if the visions and the revelations that Paul saw simply just can't be put into human language. We don't know. But in any case, imagine that you're one of the people who just a little while ago was claiming that people should stop following Paul and pay more attention to you because you had a stronger resume. So you're one of these people. You're one of these other, other preachers, pastors maybe, and you're saying, hey, Corinthians... Hey, come listen to me because my, you know, my rhetorical skills are amazing, right? And they didn't stop there. They were effectively calling Paul a loser because he had faced all these problems. They had essentially written Paul off, written his ministry off. So Paul has finally drawn them in, and then he hits them with a the fact that he's been holding on to for 14 years, you know, as if he forgot about it, Right? you know, just kind of nonchalantly throws it out there. Today, it's what we, um, I mean, it's something approaching like a a humble brag. Oh, by the way, in the midst of all that other stuff that I mentioned, all the shipwrecks and all that, uh, the God of the universe called me up to heaven and showed me things that would make your ears explode if I told you about them. But yeah, I mean, you're a great speaker. Yeah. Not only is he not going to play their game of self-aggrandizement, Right? But if he did, he would win anyway. Right? And he would be justifying in boasting. Right? As modern day philosopher says, modern day philosopher Drake, he says, hey, what's that, facts? Yes, facts. Paul would be absolutely justified in boasting about this because he's not making the story up. He was there and witnessed this. But this isn't why Paul mentions the fact." And here's the point of of this first uh, uh, major piece of the sermon. Here's the point of the boasting. He does it to draw them in. And now that he's got everyone's attention, and they think that he's going to go on and show off all of these accolades, instead he's going to deflect attention away from himself and towards God, the true source of strength. That's why he goes on boasting. He's going to deflect this attention away. So I want to talk about the the thorn then. How's he going to do this? So before Paul makes it clear that he's talking about God's grace as a source of strength, he talks about this thorn in the flesh. And the particular order of Paul's thinking is important. His audience values strength. In fact, they idolize it. So to lead with tales of strength would only affirm what they think. Their misconception that weakness is evidence of the lack of being blessed. And it's that mindset that Paul wants to take on directly when he describes the thorn. So, take a look at verse 7. It says So, to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So, there's a lot in there that we need to unpack. And this is where we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning. I want to talk about what the thorn was and what the purpose of the thorn is. So as you might expect, there's been a lot of speculation through the years about the exact nature of Paul's thorn, and I don't pretend to have some new insight here, but I think the text gives us some indication um, of, of what this was, what he was dealing with. So first, the thorn seems to be external, right? meaning this was probably not a sin struggle that Paul was dealing with. He clearly states that the thorn was given to him. And even though he notes that it was a messenger of Satan, we 're soon going to see that God is in full control, right? and God is not in the business of foisting sin upon people second there 's some commentary that thinks that this thorn was probably physical in nature, and the, the fact that Paul refers to this as being in the flesh is the best you know, textual evidence for that I think that, I think that 's reasonable, um, though I would point out that there is some use of this word in the Old Testament. When talking about problems in a more figurative sense, right. this happens in Numbers, it happens in um, Ezekiel, among other books in the Old Testament, where it's not um, a thorn, but it's something that's meant to indicate that, uh, that your path is, is being uh, frustrated, that your purpose is being hindered by these thorns. So, it might have been the constant persecutions that Paul faced. It might have been some physical ailment that, that made his ministry even more difficult than it already was. The simple fact is that we don't have enough evidence to know the, you know the precise nature of the thorn. Now, that being said, just a few verses later, Paul hints at the kinds of troubles he encountered on account of this thorn. In verse 10, he writes, for the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults hardships, persecutions, and calamities. And I think that may be the clearest indication of the effects of whatever this thorn was. It's something that caused Paul to experience weakness through a number of different modes, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. And I think in that list, there's a lot of relevance for us. And that's where I want to go next. I think these things are universal parts of of every Christian's experience. Um, In in his wonderful book, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis deals with the questions of of human suffering and evil. And when considering how humans experience various thorns, he writes this. says, We can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, he speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Pain is the megaphone that insists that we pay attention. Right? And Paul lists some examples. He lists insults. This might be when, when people have uh, uh, think of, when they think of clever ways of making fun of your faith or your lifestyle, or they make your words look foolish. You don't have to go far to find people making fun of your faith. If you pulled out your phone right now and you went on Twitter, I guarantee there are people on right now mocking just how naive Christians are. And there's cultural norms too, right, on TV and on music. For instance, how foolish in the world's eyes if you're a single person who, because of your faith, chooses to save yourself sexually until marriage. Paul encountered hardships. These might be circumstances that are forced upon you where you lack control, situations where you feel trapped, where you feel powerless. Maybe you took this job thinking it would be a dream job, but six months later, it just feels like a nightmare. Maybe you had that dream job and you lost it, and now you're just financially treading water. You didn't ask for things to be this way. You didn't plan things. This isn't how you would script it, but here you are, and, and it's hard. It's really hard. It's hardships. Paulus persecutions, wounds or circumstances of of prejudice that you're experiencing or exploitation because of your faith. Maybe there are social circles that you're excluded from on account of your faith because people think you wouldn't fit in. We don't think about ourselves facing many persecutions, you know, in, in our context here in Nashville, but we have church members abroad who absolutely risk being shunned by their communities, by their neighbors, employers, by their governments, if their faith is widely known. And calamities. This might be anything that, that just overcomes you with stress and tension. Paul listed a bunch of these in chapter 11, but we've all experienced calamities. Right? The loss of a loved one, illness, loneliness, exclusion from friends and family, abuse, these things can be so, so painful and so pervasive that just thinking about them uh, generates anxiety that can be debilitating. All right, we've all experienced some kind of calamities. I wonder if any of you have ever had times when things are going really well and you worry that, oh my gosh, things are too good, that the other shoe is about to drop right? because you're so worried about the calamities. Here's what Pastor John Piper says about those four categories of weakness. He says, they are circumstances and situations, experience and wounds that make us look weak, things we would probably get rid of if we had human strength. Yeah, and that seems right to me, right? Things that we would probably get rid of if we had the human strength. I think it's natural to want to not just downplay, but get rid of these weaknesses. Think back to that list insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. Right? Nobody is signing up for this stuff. And I think there's equally natural ways that we try to deal with these. Well, some of the ones I thought of, the, the remedies of self-reliance, apathy, evasion. There's a poster that some of you may have seen, or you may have seen a knockoff uh, of, the, of the poster. It's a, you know, it's smallish, it's it got simple, white, text on um, a, a colored background, usually just a solid colored background, in, and it's got a little royal crown at the top, and it says keep calm and carry on. Anybody? Have you seen this before? This, now they have these for every different thing. I'm sure the Predators have something downtown. Keep calm and smash on or something. <clears throat> it says keep calm and carry on. These posters, the, the history of this, the posters were made by the British crown during World War II. And they were put up in an effort to boost morale while cities in Great Britain were being bombed by the Germans. I think the posters, though, also illustrate how we deal with those thorns, with those weaknesses. Right? The phrase itself seems to indicate that people could, just of their own strength, keep living normal lives and repel German attacks. Right? But on, on its face, that's absurd, You cannot, based solely on self-reliance, walk beneath bombing raids and survive. Weapons of mass destruction do not care about your resolve. Viewed another way, the posters could simply be apathetic. Keep calm and carry on, because nothing you do will have an effect on the situation anyway. You're helpless, so you might as well just keep on keeping on finally was the reality of what, you know, Londoners actually did. They evaded, right? When the sirens sounded, thousands of people in London would go underground. They'd line the subway tunnels to evade the, uh, and avoid the attack. And like the posters, I think it's a very natural thing to try to keep calm and carry on, whether or not that leads us to rely on our own strength. Or, or to feel apathetic and powerless and want to curl up in a ball, or to avoid the situation already. And the risk is that we will keep trying those methods of dealing with our own thorns until we realize the true purpose of them and embrace God's remedy. And that's where I'm going to shift for this last part of the discussion of the thorn. So just as important as it is to, to see how everyone reading or hearing Paul's letter has experienced thorns of a sort, it's crucial that we get a sense for why Paul received the thorn. So he gives us three clear examples in the text. So if you're you're following, I'm looking at the second part of verse 7 through verse 9. A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So the first explanation is that the thorn is a messenger of Satan, Satan, the enemy of God. He wants to harass us. He wants to disrupt our lives. But, I mean, honestly, like... The guy's just, the guy, I don't know, the being, It's just a doofus. It's not that I have sympathy for the devil. I assure you I do not. Um, But the devil, Satan truly cannot catch a break here. He is constantly being directed around like a puppet, like God's puppet. One of the clearest examples that we have from this comes in the Old Testament book of Job. Right, Job was an upright man, but God allows Satan to harass him, knowing the whole time that ultimately Job's faithfulness would stand up to the torment. So even when Satan is harassing us, it's, it's within the limits set by God. That, I understand, is pretty mysterious. But I, I want everybody to appreciate that a god who is powerful enough to bring about pain, is also big enough to have reasons for doing so that are beyond our comprehension. The second explanation given for the thorn is to keep Paul from being conceited. And um, this is one that I can personally relate to. You know, as if it wasn't obvious to us, God realizes our need for humility. So, uh, so I, I fancy myself a cyclist. Um, for those of you in the, in the front row, I've got little bikes on my socks, um, which is obviously the mark of any true cyclist. <laughs> so a few years ago, Steph got me this, this um, cool like, canvas print of, um, of this Dutch pro cyclist. His name is Piet van Kempen. He was a pro cyclist in the 1930s, and there's this great picture of him riding his bike. And I can't, at the, I can't even do it up here. um, But he's riding his bike. He's got one foot in the clip, you know, pedaling. He's got his other foot on the handlebars, steering. In one hand, he's got a newspaper, and in the other, he's drinking espresso. He's such a boss. But, but we are not called to lead a life that shines a spotlight on our ability, right? We're not called to shine the spotlight and constantly highlight what might be perceived as our self-sufficiency. That's not our, that's not our calling as believers. Instead, let me tell you about a different kind of cycling artifact that I have, right? It's the, the cracked black Giro helmet that I got. Right when I was riding along, perfectly sunny day, and a guy comes barreling around the corner. The only way to avoid him was to swerve, and I was on a wet wooden bridge. And if you're on a wet wooden bridge, on little skinny, you know, baby tires, you go down. And I I got up, and my ears were ringing, and my bike is mangled, and my skin and... Lycra is on the pavement. I truly thanked God for his grace and protection. Now, that's not the story I lead with if somebody asks me if I, if I ride bikes, right? Oh, yeah, I, I ride. I, uh, I ride a lot. I had an awful wreck and almost got myself a concussion, right? That doesn't get you invited back to many group rides. But that wreck was certainly humbling, just as telling you about it um, is. And now remember what had just happened in this letter. Forget riding a bike with one foot. Paul had been given visions and was taken to heaven, either physically or in some spirit form. He heard things that he can't even speak about. He recognizes that left to his own devices, he would absolutely take pride in being the one to receive that amazing gift. So God gives him something else to occupy his attention. It gives them this thorn in the flesh. And so in a similar way, I think we've got to search our own hearts to see whether or not we seek our own glory in our daily lives. The third reason for the, for the thorn is found in verses nine and 10. Paul says that for the sake of Christ, he endures the weaknesses. God's purpose is to glorify Jesus by making Paul a showcase for Jesus' power. Not by getting rid of the thorn, which is what we might expect, which is what we might do if we had the power ourselves, but by giving Paul the strength to endure. Again, here's C.S. Lewis. He writes, The real problem is not why some pious, humble, believing people suffer, but why some do not. Guys, the thorns, the weaknesses, the hardships and insults and persecutions that Paul experienced, that each of us experiences, those are not evidence that God is absent. Those are the sounds and the sirens that are coming through the megaphone, reminding us just how in need of a Savior we are. And and this brings me to the final portion of today's sermon is the treasure or the turn, right? The part in the story when something magnificent has to happen in order to escape the crisis. And in this case, the treasure is actually the hero, Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate example of God's sovereignty and God's grace. Jesus is how we can endure thorns of our own. And so that's easy enough to say, but how can you be sure that God is working things out, Right? And And beyond that, how can you trust that Jesus is the only answer? So there's a a few ways that... um, And I think that these things distinguish Christianity from other religions, certainly, and other philosophies or worldviews. The simple fact that Paul himself is boasting about being given a nagging, perhaps painful ailment that he's been dealing with for years should be evidence that something is different about this man's faith. I don't think Paul was seeking out those experiences, all those hardships and shipwrecks and being stoned and beaten. I don't think he was seeking those out. But he knows that God will meet him in his weakness. And God meeting you in your weakness is sweeter than any solution of your own making. Given the list of hardships that Paul recounts and the fact that his audience really values self-reliance, it would have made sense for him to to weave together some narrative about how he pulled himself up by his own bootstraps. Instead, he uses the situations to deflect attention away from himself and back to Christ. That is not a natural thing. That is by the power of the Spirit. Another major piece of evidence that we have to know that God is in control, that he can use these thorns, is based on what we see in Jesus' own life. Here's a man who was born poor. He was not born of royal or or noble birth in that time. He didn't have an army. He didn't have a kingdom. He essentially had a nomadic traveling ministry. He was friends with unremarkable people. He ate with the dregs of society. He was tried like one of the worst criminals, though his only crime was telling the truth. This is not how we would script our salvation story. And multiple times, just like Paul in this passage, Christ has to be taken out of certain circumstances, but God kept him there. That's what I want you to know. God kept him there. When he's... In the garden, he asks that this cup would pass from him. On the cross, he cries out to God, Why have you forsaken me? You see, I think, I think we want to be like the, like the celebrities who get on stage after winning an Oscar or a Grammy. We want to get up there, and we want to give you know, all praise to God. But we want to do it while we're holding the trophy in our hand. We want god 's control to look like our success, but it 's on the cross that Jesus redeemed us from our failures by showing us that he was really in control and here 's the, here's the final way that we can know that this treasure is for us as Christians, as believers, we can have assurance that we share in christ 's death at the time the christ uh, the death on the cross was perhaps the ultimate show of weakness. But Christ's death was unlike any unlike any other death before or after. Because the grave could not keep him. The weight of sin that was so heavy to crush heavy enough to crush all people, it couldn't hold him down. So in what looks like the ultimate weakness, God is doing his most powerful work. Through Christ, death takes on new meaning, ultimate strength. Here's what Galatians says about people who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ. It's from the third chapter in Galatians. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus and if you are Christ's then you are Abraham's offspring heirs according to promise if we are in Christ we put on his death and we put on his resurrection right? and like Paul we're told that God's grace is sufficient each of us each of us carries thorns but what should give us hope And the hope to truly carry on is that we know that God will meet us in those moments. And each moment is another chance to point people away from our own weaknesses and towards Christ's perfect power. Pray with me. Father God, help us put on Christ. We thank you that that's even an option. We thank you that our ability to put on Christ is not dependent upon our own strength. It's not dependent upon our own perfection, but in fact is because of our imperfection or that you made a way. We thank you for sufficient grace that more than matches any weakness, any insults, calamity, any hardship, any persecution that we experience. God, help us to turn attention away from ourselves. Help us to turn attention away from our strength, but instead direct it towards the true Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.